Well, good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Proverbs. Book of Proverbs. And today we're talking politics. Or more specifically, we're talking about God's will for political leaders. I'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we will get started together. You should, by the way, see my sermon outline inside the bulletin. I will basically be following that outline this morning, and then you'll also see a separate insert with the passages that we'll be going through together. So if it's too difficult to to try to rifle through the pages of your Bible, then you can look at that single insert. All right, let's pray together. Our Lord, you have given us a beautiful morning to gather together as a church family. So thankful for all those who have come. Lord, we know that our lives are in your hands and and this ministry is in your hands. And we thank you so much for how you have met every need, Lord, spiritual and material for us. Lord, as we now gather here in the book of Proverbs, and we consider what your will is for political leaders, or give us understanding, use it to shape the way that that we make political decisions as an electorate. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in this time, but also in our nation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So on September 26th of 1960, America had its first televised presidential debate. The debate was between Richard Nixon, who at the time was Eisenhower's vice president, and John F. Kennedy, who was a senator from Massachusetts. And Kennedy understood the power of television. And so before the debate began, he consulted with TV producers and all kinds of people to make sure that he would maximize the impact of his time on TV. He learned about colors and camera angles and everything that makes for a good TV image. He chose a dark blue suit because it would contrast well with the light blue background on the debate stage. He made sure not to fidget or make any unusual movements throughout the broadcast. When he was asked questions, he would answer directly into the camera, speaking to the TV audience. Well, Nixon did not yet understand the power of television. And so he chose a light gray suit for the debate, which made him look completely washed out next to the light gray background on the stage. And throughout the debate, he was shifting his weight like this from side to side, which made him look very feeble. And then when he would answer the moderator's questions, often he would look at the moderator instead of looking into the camera lens. And this gave the impression that he was distant or even a little senile to the TV viewers. Now, most of the people who listened to the debate on the radio said that Nixon had won the debate. But the overwhelming majority who watched on television said that Kennedy had won. And in fact, 75% of the undecided TV viewers 
ended up voting for Kennedy in the election. See, the image that Kennedy had projected won him the presidency. And ever since then, image, not character, has been king in politics. Modern politicians hire consultants to tell them how to dress, how to gesture with their hands, how to, how to talk, to sound like an average person. They hire branding experts to create the perfect fonts and color schemes and logos for all of their campaign literature. They hire focus groups to, to judge the opinions of people um, before any decision is made. In fact, President Bill Clinton famously held focus groups to decide where to take his family vacations. The group said, go to the national parks. So he did. Now, by the 1990s, the very idea that a politician's character should have any bearing on his qualifications for office was almost completely thrown out the window. A separation was made between the two. So a person with corrupt character could still be deemed acceptable for public office. Now, the book of Proverbs challenges these attitudes. It calls us to put personal character front and center for our political leaders. It calls us to refuse to believe that a corrupt individual could ever lead a nation into righteousness. Now, I want us to consider this together this morning. And the first passage we'll explore is Proverbs chapter 14, verses 28 through 35. Proverbs 14, verses 28 through 35. Now, there's a sense in which the entire book of Proverbs is written for aspiring political leaders. After all, it's written by a king to his sons. These were the next in line to the throne. So everything applies to political leadership. And yet there are these, these special passages of Scripture throughout the book that really focus on the, the nature of a good political leader. And so those are the ones that we're looking at this morning. You'll notice it begins with this uh, simple statement of fact. Verse 28, in a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people, a prince is ruined. So the glory of a king is to rule over a kingdom that is filled with people. The shame of a king or of a prince is to rule over a kingdom that has been emptied of people. And why would that be the case? Well, because when a nation or a kingdom is filled with people, this is a testament to the fact that this king must be ruling well. See, the people born into his kingdom obviously want to stay. They want to build their families there. People outside the kingdom are eager to move in and be a part of it. See, when you have a good government and the nation under that government is thriving, the biggest problem the nation has is just trying to control the flow of people who want to get in to be a part of it. So this is the glory of the king. It's only a, a bad king or a bad government that must build up walls to keep people from leaving. You see, it's the shame of a king when his people want to leave. So there's the, the basic statement of fact. But now the question is, how does a king 
Or in our context, how does a, a political leadership cultivate a nation that will attract people? How, how do they create a nation that, that will cause people to want to stay and build their families there and, and have people move in? Well, according to the verses that follow, it's all about character. You'll notice that our author here moves seamlessly between the king's personal character and his public policy decisions. See, character is everything for a nation. Verse 29, if you want that kind of a kingdom, the king must be kind. Verse 30, he must have a tranquil heart. Verse 31, he must not mistreat the poor. In fact, just the opposite. He should be moved with compassion for the poor, even willing to give of his own resources to alleviate their suffering. Verse 32, he should be committed to righteousness. Verse 33, he should be wise. Verse 34, he should promote righteousness in his kingdom, rewarding the good, punishing the evil. Verse 35, he must punish evil. So in short, for a nation to thrive, the people leading the nation must be people of character. They have to have internal character, which then drives them to make public policy decisions that cause righteousness to thrive in the nation. When you have a nation led by righteous rulers who are enacting righteous policies, then you get a citizenry that is flourishing. It's a good place for them to stay and build their households and work at their jobs. And it's the kind of a place that others outside the nation want to come and be a part of. But it all comes down to the character of the people leading that nation. Well, then we turn to our next passage, which is Proverbs 16, verses 10 to 15. This is another passage giving us the character qualities of the ideal political ruler. Verse 10 explains that he is wise. When, when he speaks, it's as if God himself is speaking. That's the wisdom coming out of his mouth. Verse 11, he is just. Verse 12, he is righteous. Verse 13, he speaks what is true. Verse 14, he reward, his rewards and punishments are swift. See, once again here that great nations are ruled by good leaders. Another important passage is found in Proverbs 25. Proverbs 25 and verse 2. This verse says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. And what this means is that a good king will not make rash decisions. Okay, He's not going to be driven by, by emotion or impulse. Instead, he's going to gather around himself all of the best counselors, and he's going to consider all sides of a matter. He's going to think through the implications of the policies that he is going to enact, and he, he brings all of this to bear before making a decision. See, and then when he makes his decision the people can be assured that it was thoughtful and that it will be in the best interest of the populace. Another important passage is found in Proverbs 29, verses 12 through 14. 
This passage tells us that a good king will refuse to countenance lies, verse 12. And then he will treat the fair poorly, not exploiting their weakness. That's verses 13 and 14. We have another description of the good king in Proverbs chapter 31. Verses 4 and 5, it says, A good king will avoid alcohol. Why? Because alcohol can impair one's judgment. And a king of all people does not want to have impaired judgment. He wants to think clearly and crisply about every matter. And he doesn't want to forget decisions that he's already made. And he doesn't want to, to do foolish things that would discredit him or hurt his people. So he is wise about alcohol. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 31, it says he also protects the rights of all people, whether they have anything to offer him or not. You see, great nations are shaped by good leaders. You cannot hope to have a morally corrupted person leading the government, but still end up with a righteous government. The two, the two cannot hold together. Great nations are shaped by good moral leaders. Now, looking at all of the passages together, I think we can see four specific traits, or maybe we could say these are, these are four categories of traits that make for God's kind of leader. Number one, they have a calm temperament. Calm temperament. They're not prone to mood swings. They're not given to anger or vindictiveness or fears or jealousy or any of that. The verses we looked at said, good leaders, moral leaders are calm leaders. Number two, they have a clear moral compass. This means that they love what God says is good. They hate what God says is evil. And they are committed to rewarding the former and judging the latter. They have clear moral compass. Number three, they have a commitment to impartiality. They will protect the rights of the rich and the poor equally, the powerful and the powerless. And then number four, good political leaders have cultivated their powers of discernment. They have cultivated their powers of discernment. That means they don't make rash decisions. Instead, they gather those counselors around them. They carefully ponder the ramifications of every suggestion, and they only make a decision after carefully considering all of it. They also understand human nature. They understand how people work. They understand the effects that various laws can have on human behavior. And they bring all of this to bear as they make a decision about what policies to enact. So my friends, these are the qualities, according to Proverbs, which make for good political leaders. When you have enough of them in place, then you get a good government. And when you have a good government, then you also get a flourishing nation. Now, friends, I think this means that it's time for us to start demanding morality 
of our political leaders. We have been obsessed with image long enough. Looking at at the politicians' dress and mannerisms and eloquence and, and looking at personality and all of the things that really don't matter in the end. It's time for us to let those things go and focus on the, the integrity of our leaders. We must demand of our candidates that they be moral people. Whenever someone presents themselves as a candidate for political office, we should say, show me that you are a person of integrity. Show me that I can trust you with the reins of power. Show me every other area of your life, and let's see how you have managed those parts of your life too. Let's look at your family. Has your family been made better by you, or are they worse off because of you? Let's look at your church. Has your church been made better or worse by your leadership? Or let's look at your business. Did your employees thrive? Would they recommend you for greater leadership or no? Let's look at the community that you're living in. Have you worked to see that community thrive? Or have you been indifferent to the needs of the people immediately around you? It's time for us to demand character from our political leaders. Friends, I should also note that when we find a politician who is a man or woman of character, we should get behind that person. We should thank God that such people do exist because they really do, even in modern America with its obsession over Image instead of character, we still have some really good leaders in our communities, states, and in our nation. Thank God for those, and let's get behind them and show them our support so that the world knows these are the kinds of people that we will trust with power. To everyone else, we should say, don't even bother running. You will not have my vote, not if you're morally bankrupt. I can't trust you to rule over me. Well, and that takes us then to the second main point of my message. It really flows from the first point. Our leaders must be moral people. But then next part of that morality means they understand the limitations of their office. This is so important. My friends, the governing authorities are not gods. They are not gods. They are men and women who live under the authority of God, just like the rest of us. And they are accountable to God for how they exercise their powers. No politician can be trusted in office unless they understand this truth. The book of Proverbs tells us, that even kings serve at God's pleasure. Proverbs 20, 28 says, Steadfast love preserves the king. That's talking about God's commitment to them. They only serve for as long as God says they can serve. They must recognize that. They also serve God's purposes. Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the Lord's hand. 
In ancient times, in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, where water was very scarce, the farmers would create these trenches, and they would create dams, and they would try to direct the flow of water into their fields. They didn't change the nature of the water. They didn't force the water anywhere. They just built the trenches and allowed the water to flow and do its thing. Well, in the same way, the heart of the king is in God's hands. He has a way of getting his purposes through regardless of the leaders that are in power. He can order circumstances by his providence. He can exert supernatural influences and he can bend the heart of a king to do his will. You see, political leaders are always underneath the sovereign hand of God. They are there by his authority. They are only there as long as he wants them there. And their reign will be governed by his providential movings. And in this way, God is sovereign over all the world. You know, God has also put strict limits on the kinds of powers that governing leaders can exercise. And politicians must be content to work within their God-ordained limits. It's true God has delegated a tremendous amount of power to human governments. Proverbs 19.12 and Proverbs 20, verse 2, affirm that kings have the power of life and death in some instances. But even so, the government's power is not absolute. Governments do not get to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. They don't get to decide what is true and what is false. See, a government's job is to take what God has declared to be true and false and right and wrong, and then to find a way to enact that in public policy for the good of their subjects. Proverbs 14.35 describes the ideal king. It says, His wrath falls on those who act shamefully. Proverbs 20, verse 8 says that he winnows evil. Proverbs 20, 26 says he winnows the wicked and drives a wheel over them. This is what a just government is supposed to do. They say, okay, God has declared this to be evil. Therefore, this shall face my wrath. And he says, these things God declares are good. And so these we will promote, we will reward And in this way, law-abiding citizens can enjoy peaceful and quiet lives. The Apostle Paul affirms this principle as well in Romans chapter 13. We had this passage read earlier in the service. Paul begins by explaining the citizen's responsibility to government. He says, "Let let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And here's why. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. But then immediately after, Paul goes on to explain the proper limitations of human government. It says the government's job is, quote, to give approval to what is good, to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. See, there is the citizen's job, respect the government, give it what it's owed. But now here is the government's job. It is to take what God has said is good behavior and evil behavior and to execute their laws accordingly. To pass laws that reward the good, that punish the evil, and then to faithfully carry out the sentences for crimes. 
That is their job, plain and simple. You know what? It's really not that difficult a job because God has made his general moral principles really easy for us to find. God has etched it into every human conscience. And as a general rule, our consciences work pretty well, don't they? They tell us when, when we're doing something that's wrong, and they, they make us feel good when we know we're doing what's right. Every human has a conscience, and this can be a guide to political leaders to know what is behavior that should be discouraged, what's behavior that should be encouraged, and then to make the laws accordingly. But you know, God has also laid his moral principles down explicitly in his word. Just consider the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments were originally given by God to the children of Israel to be the foundation for their national life. But as we read through the rest of the scriptures, it's also clear that these were not limited moral principles, but rather they transcend time and culture. These are God's moral principles for all peoples. And until recently, these Ten Commandments were displayed in every courthouse and in every public school in the land because our leaders recognized that we are a people under authority and that we must honor God's moral truths. You know, even today, the Ten Commandments are etched on the wooden doors of the Supreme Court building, and they're at the top of the gable at the main entrance, Moses and the two tablets. Righteous governments take the commandments of God seriously. For example, here are commandments one through four. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These commandments tell us that God is really zealous for his own name. You know what just kings do with that? Or just presidents or human governments? They enact laws that make it easy for churches to operate so their messages can spread as far and wide as possible. And they encourage their citizens to seek after God, knowing that in Him they will find ultimate happiness. How about the fifth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. What will a just political leader do with that? Well, they will uh, affirm the importance of mothers and fathers, and they will do what they can to make sure that every child has the benefit of both. Or how about the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. What will a just ruler do with that? He will protect the sanctity of life from conception to natural death. There will be no exceptions for killing the innocent. How about the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. What will a righteous government do with that one? Well, they will honor the sanctity of marriage 
by enacting policies that encourage people to get married, to stay married, and to stay faithful to each other until death do them part. They will make it very difficult to undermine what God values. How about the Eighth Commandment? You shall not steal. Governments that honor this moral principle will protect the private property rights of their citizens. They will come down hard on thieves. They will not play the thief themselves by either extracting a confiscatory amount of money from their citizens in the form of taxes or by or by seizing the financial property of one citizen to transfer it wholesale to another citizen. This is an act of theft. What about the ninth and 10th commandments? You shall not bear false witness and you shall not covet your neighbor's property. Well, governments that take these principles seriously will have laws designed to keep people honest, especially in their economic dealings. See, friends, the the scriptures don't prescribe a specific form of government for all of God's people. There's actually very little said in Scripture about the mechanics of how government should be structured. If we want a Republican form of government here in America, Scriptures do not condemn us. If the people of Jordan want a monarchy, the Scriptures would not condemn them. If the people of Great Britain want a hybrid model where there is a monarch controlled by a parliament, Scriptures will not condemn that either. There is room for different structures of government. But what there is no room for is moral ambiguity in human governments. God has laid out His moral laws And the purpose of human governments is to recognize those laws and to enact policies which will uphold what is right and and curtail to the extent possible in a fallen world that which is evil. That is their job. Friends, any government that would declare good to be evil or evil to be good or that would punish people for doing what is right or reward people for doing what is wrong, has at those points transgressed the boundaries of their authority. They've attempted to become gods themselves, and in doing so have placed their nations on the road to ruin. My friends, knowing this, politicians should seek out the moral will of God and use it to inform their policy decisions. And every citizen should be thinking about the moral character of their candidates before they pull that lever and make their choice. Is this a moral person? Can this person be trusted with the levers of power? Do they understand that they are servants of God and not gods themselves? Will they promote public righteousness or will they promote public evil? Will they make life life easy for the church of Jesus Christ? Will they make life hard on the church so that the gospel cannot run? What kind of people will these be? That should inform our choice. And even as we think carefully about our political leaders and who they should be, And who we should vote for. Let us also be praying 
what Jesus taught us to pray. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, friends, the reality of the matter is that we live in a sin-cursed world. Hasn't always been this way. It won't always be this way. But in the time we're living in now, this is a sin-cursed world. Every single human being has the principle of sin in their heart and they act on it in their life. That means even the best human governments today will have deep flaws. Every single one of them because of sin. And so even as we try to exercise wisdom and have good structures of government and find the best possible people to place into leadership positions in our government, we still recognize we will never have a perfect system in this world. And so we pray, God, bring your kingdom into the world. This is the longing of every true Christian that the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived and died and rose for us 2,000 years ago, will one day come and establish a kingdom that will be perfectly righteous. Just imagine that, friends, that one day we are going to be ruled by a man with perfect righteousness. And we will ourselves be people of perfect righteousness, for we will be glorified. Sin will no longer be our desire. There will no longer be any more mourning or crying or pain, for the former things will have come to an end. And that kingdom will go on forever and ever. A glorious thought. So, friends, let the troubles of the present moment cause you to grow in your longing for that future kingdom. And do not let yourself think that we can create a perfect system here on earth where we're all sinners. Instead, let's pray that God would break into our history and give us the kingdom that we cannot bring ourselves And friends, let all of this also serve as motivation to put our greatest energies into the biblical mission. Because every time the gospel runs and somebody hears it and they receive it and they're born again, that is a new citizen made for that coming kingdom. That's the most important thing. Yes, we should care about the world we live in now. We should care about politics. We should be involved to the extent that our callings would have us be involved. But our greatest longings, our greatest energies, greatest prayers should not be for the temporal kingdoms of today, but they should be for the coming of the eternal kingdom of God. And our greatest work, the greatest expenditure of energy and money and time should be in making citizens for that future kingdom. So let the present time motivate us to pray. Let it motivate us to do the work of the ministry. And now let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for the book of Proverbs. Thank you for the the many aspects of life that it touches upon. And it even speaks to us about human government. Lord, we long for political leaders who care about righteousness, who have personal lives that are marked with integrity, 
and, and who, who enact laws that, that promote public righteousness. We long to see justice reign in our nation. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us worthy leaders, give us moral leaders. Lord, give us uh, an electorate less concerned about image and more concerned about substance. Lord, empower the citizens of this nation to choose well so that our nation can have a, a bright and glorious future. But, Lord, even as we pray this, we recognize that sin still dwells within every single one of us and that no nation will ever be perfect. And so, Lord, we long for the return of your Son, Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who will strip away all of the injustice in this world, who will give us a kingdom that will last forever and ever, ruled by a perfect man, citizens robed in his righteousness. Lord, may your kingdom come and may you give us a, a, a passion to see citizens made for that kingdom today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.